And I would invite you to take a copy of the scripture and turn to Galatians chapter 2. And once again, if you need it in the House Bible, it is page 972, or 973 actually, Galatians chapter 2. Let me remind you of the context of what's going on here. Paul is recounting a dispute that he had had with the apostle Peter. So a dispute between two disciples of Jesus. Now, Peter's habit up to this point had been to eat, fellowship, commune, to break bread with Gentiles, with uncircumcised Gentiles. Ever since he had the vision that God gave him, uh, letting the sheet come down from heaven, and God had called him to go and fellowship with a uh, to 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 break bread with a a, um, a Gentile, a Roman, and uh, lead him to the Lord Jesus. This had been Peter's habit up to this point now, but Paul recounts a time when apparently some men from Jerusalem. Uh, who had perhaps some connections with James, the other apostle. They came up to Antioch where Paul was ministering and where Peter had been visiting. And when those people came up, Peter, out of the fear of man, pulled back from any fellowship with Gentile believers in Jesus. And so Paul confronted him openly, and he's recording uh, about when that happened. Uh, And the reason that Paul felt burdened to confront this publicly was not just simply that what Peter did was unloving, but that Paul saw it as a fundamental compromise of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it was sending a mixed message to the people about what the gospel really is. Paul was preaching that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But the Judaizers had come in to teach the people that they had to come under the law if they were going to be saved. They had to be circumcised. They had to obey the Uh, keep the food commandments. They had to obey all of the the law. And Peter, of course, knew better. His gospel was that salvation comes only in Christ and the obedience of Christ. But he was pressured, I guess, into compromising his beliefs, to compromising the gospel to cause it to come into question. And it was in that context then that Paul makes one of his greatest statements, one of the greatest statements in all the Bible about how a person can be rightly related to God. Look at verse 15 and 16. These are just ought to be ones that you memorize, that you remember. They're just incredibly uh, powerful statement of the gospel here, particularly in verse 16. He says in verse 15, though, we, speaking to Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet we know that a person, any person, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, 
Peter, you and I and the Jewish people, believers in Jesus, we also have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Friends, you will never be, you will never be justified before God by keeping his commands. And the reason is that no one keeps them. No one keeps them like he should. Paul will write in the next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a Curse, because it is written, cursed is everyone who does, uh, does not abide by all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. The truth is that every one of us is under a curse if, if we are determined to be oriented to God on the basis of our merit, on our good deeds, on being a good person, upon obeying the, the, the things that we think we should be doing. If you're going to go that route, here's what you need to give to God. In the words of the 1689 London Confession, human beings are bound to, quote, personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. That's the kind of obedience that merits favor with God. Apart from that, none of us has any hope. We can't say, well, I'm, I try to be pretty good. I, 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 I try hard, but I'm not perfect. Uh, at least I'm a lot better than so-and-so. None of this is sufficient in the eyes of God. If you would enter into heaven on the basis of your works, you must work those works perfectly personally, perpetually, entirely, and exactly. Most who think that they're pretty good people, the truth is they just don't know the law very well. It's easy to think that you're a, a good person, an, an obedient person before God, that God might, might receive you if you don't know what His demands really are, how deep they really go, and what they really entail. The law brings, in fact, a knowledge of sin. We read this earlier. So by the works of the law, Paul says, no one will be justified. Obedience to God is never the cause of your being right with God, being right before God, because you cannot be obedient enough. Salvation, justification before God, Paul insists, comes by faith in Christ, who was obedient enough. And that is the gospel. That was Paul's gospel. That was Peter's gospel. That was the gospel that is the gospel that saves, and yet it was being compromised. Now, here's an important thing to remember, that whenever you proclaim the truth, whenever you proclaim the gospel or God's truth, you will usually have to confront objections and head off distortions of that truth. And this is what Paul is doing in our text here, beginning in verse 17. Take a look again at the Word of God before you. 
Verse 17, he says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuilt what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, there are a couple of things that make this passage particularly difficult. I just want to put that out there right up front. I spent a lot of time this week thinking and reading and writing. I think the first thing that makes it difficult is that the Christian's relationship to the law is something that really needs to be carefully nuanced. And there are a lot of texts in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, that deal with a Christian's relationship to the law. And it's sometimes a challenge to harmonize all of those and do justice to um, all of that while coming to a particular passage and emphasizing what that particular passage emphasizes in that moment. So there is that challenge. But I think also, in particular, with regard to this text, there is the challenge that Paul's logic here, if you, if, if you, if you sat down and, and, and looked at verses 17 and following and tried to figure out what, the line of his argumentation, um, his logic seems to be sort of compressed. Like, he, he assumes certain things in the course of his logic so that it's not apparent on the surface um, exactly how the things connect. It's not as well developed, in other words, as um, his arguments in Romans sometimes tend to be. This is a much shorter book. What is clear, though, about this passage is that Paul is dealing with an objection and a potential distortion of the gospel. And he does so by anticipating people's questions in their mind and stating it in in his own way as a rhetorical question. You see it in verse 17. Take a look at it again. Here's his his anticipation of people's objections or distortion of the gospel. He says, now if... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be, we're found to be sinners. Then is Christ the servant of sin? And of course, his answer is, by no means. And then he'll explain why that's not the case. Now, what I want you to notice, first of all, is that Paul here in this text is still talking about Jewish believers. Take a look at up in verse 15. You see, this is, this is the context in which we are finding our text here. Verse 15, he says, We ourselves, talking about himself and Peter, we ourselves are what? We're Jews by birth. Okay. Then in verse 16, he says, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ, just like the Gentiles. 
And then in verse 17, he says, If in our endeavor to be justified by Christ, we too were found to be sinners. There's a consistent we all the way through this. The we he speaks of is he and Peter in particular, and Jewish believers in general. So I think that's an important starting point. So while these Jews are believing in Jesus Christ for their justification before God, Paul says they're also found to be sinners, right? You see where he's going with this? We Jews, putting our faith and trust in Christ alone for our justification before God, are found to be sinners. And then the question that comes from that is natural. Well, then that does that mean that Christ is a servant of sin? And I uh, wrestled with this quite a bit, and I'm just going to give you two possible interpretations that seem to have good support, what, what Paul's trying to communicate here. On the one hand, it could be that Paul is trying to say something like this. If we Jews are no better off than Gentiles in terms of the obedience that God demands, we're sinners just like them. And of course, Christ came to be the servant of God for the Jews. Then does that mean that somehow Christ is condoning sin? This, I think, has the advantage of taking sinners. He says, we were found to be sinners, right? This takes sinners at face value. The truth is, he says, we are sinners. We're sinners just like the, the Gentiles are sinners. Oh, we, we don't have any special favor with God just because we have the law. We fail to keep it. We sin just like they do. And so it takes sinners at face value that it's a valid claim. And in fact, all of the other times that Paul uses the phrase, God forbid, and there are ten of them, as my count, Paul is dealing with something that's a true premise, but people are drawing a false conclusion from that. So, so all of that to say this could be what he's saying. That, that would mean, that would seem to take, we were found to be sinners then as a true statement. That's absolutely true. But does that mean this? No. There's one explanation. The second one is this, that, and I think this is more likely, that Paul is saying something like this. If, if Peter and I and the other Jewish Christians, if we live like the Gentiles, if we live like the Gentiles, ignoring um, the food laws, um, not relying on circumcision, if we live like the Gentiles, which is what the false teachers saw as a great sin, right? Then does that mean that Christ condones, quote-unquote, sinful behavior, the way that we're living? And I think that makes a little better sense of the explanations that follow. And I, I think in the explanations, it'll, I'll try to unpack what I mean by this. But I think there are two indications in this text, even right so far, that, in, that uh, show that that's probably where Paul's going. The first is the word endeavoring. You see that? He says, we are, in, if we as Jewish believers, we are endeavoring to, um, to be justified before God. We're seeking to be justified. Now, let me ask you, are we endeavoring to be justified? 
or is our justification once for all? In the, in the sense of justification, strictly speaking, it is once for all. It's done in Christ. So what does he mean? If we are endeavoring to be justified, I think he's got the, the um, false teachers in mind. He's anticipating their arguments. They say that we're trying to be justified. We're seeking to be justified before God in terms of faith in Christ alone. That, that's not the way to be justified before God in their view. But we're, that's the way we're seeking to be justified before God. I think that's an indication that he's anticipating the false teacher's arguments. The other thing that he says here is that we are, we were found to be sinners. And that word sinners has already been used in the context up in verse what? Go back forward, backwards in the text to verse 15. And you see it there. He says, we are Jews by birth and not what? Gentile sinners. In the Jews' minds, that was the same thing. right? Gentile sinners. Sinners were the Gentile nations. Those who were outside of the law. They were outlaws. So when he says we were found to be sinners... I think he's saying that we were discovered to be living like the Gentiles, not observing those distinctly Jewish um, laws. And, uh, of course, this is exactly um, what he said to Peter in verse 14. You, being a Jew, are living just like a Gentile, right? And yet you're condemning the Gentiles for not living like Jews. So all of that to say, again, I think the argument here is this, that Paul is basically saying now, if Peter and I, if the Jewish Christians are living like the Gentiles, ignoring circumcision and the food laws and so forth, which the, which the false teachers view as a great sin, then does that mean that Christ condones, quote-unquote, sinful behavior? And his answer is certainly not. May it never be. God forbid. God does not approve of sin in any form. And I just want to say this, friends, that as long as the gospel of justification by grace through faith alone, apart from law-keeping, as long as the gospel of grace has been preached, it's been subject to the accusation that the gospel encourages sinfulness. It's like you're giving somebody a, quote-unquote, get-out-of-hell-free card. If you say that it's not up to them and it doesn't depend on their works as to whether or not they're justified in the sight of God, it depends on the works of Jesus Christ. It's like saying, go out and do what you want, right? There is no motivation in that kind of gospel, so the argument goes, to live a holy life. It's like winning the spiritual lottery. If God gives righteousness away for free, then how's he ever going to get anybody to work for him again? Doesn't this just make Christ the servant of sin? So Paul's going to answer that objection in three ways. All right, take a look at the text again. The first is he's going to say that actually the contrary is true. Actually, the contrary is true. Verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, 
Then I prove myself to be a transgressor. What is Paul referring to? He said, when I rebuild what I tore down. I think in this context, it refers most naturally to the law. But not the law as the morally binding will of God. Jesus, using the very same terminology, said, I did not come to abolish the law. That's the same word. And he goes on to expound and apply the moral law in that text in Matthew chapter 5. So Paul is not saying, I tore down the law in terms of the morally binding will of God, but rather the law as covenant. In fact, um, the term for tearing it down is the term that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 24 to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and all of the, um, all of the covenantal trappings of, of Israel. In other words, Paul, through the gospel, tore down the law as a binding covenant, a covenant of works whereby we, if we obey it, we will live, but if we disobey it, we will what? We'll die. We'll be under a curse. That law as covenant, as binding covenant of works upon us has been torn down in the gospel. The law covenant will only ever bring judgment because we have all failed to obey God like we should. So Paul's saying then, now if I rebuild that, like the false teachers are trying to do, if I rebuild this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, if I require circumcision in order to be saved, obedience to the law in order to be justified before God, then what am I doing? I'm bringing myself back under all of the law's demands for a covenant relationship with God. And I will fail to meet them and thus prove myself to be a transgressor. He says, what you're saying, you false teachers, is actually, it's actually going to have the opposite effect of what you're uh, saying and, and what you're accusing us of. Friends, you really compare any person to the perfect law of God and what will you find? You'll find that that person is a transgressor. Who, who of us who has come to know some more of the law of God, his expectations, his commands, his expectations of holiness has, who of us could say, I'm, I'm righteous before God? The truth is that the mind of the flesh is hostile to God, is, does, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The law came in to increase the trespass. The law produced death in me, Paul said. Through the commandment, my sin became sinful beyond measure, he said. Have you really ever examined yourself in light of the law of God? The law of God only serves to prove that you are a transgressor. And if you, he says to them, if you are intent on bringing people back under the law as a covenant in terms of your relationship with God, depending on your law-keeping, then you are just going to prove that you're a transgressor. Now, 
Paul says that it's not the gospel then that brings about sin. It's the law that actually exposes and provokes sin. And then he says, secondly, all right, take a look now at verse 19. Here's his second answer to this objection that the gospel of Jesus Christ promotes sin. His second answer, and you see it in the second word for at the beginning of verse 19. You might underline that word. There's a for at the beginning of verse 18. Here's the second answer, for at the beginning of verse 19. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's going to say two things here. Uh, Well, his second answer, let me summarize it this way. His second answer is this, that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ has broken the law's hold over me and has given me new life. I don't know if you can even read that. It's kind of light at the top, isn't it? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ has broken the law's hold over me and has given me new life. So in the first case, he says that the Christian has died. Did you know that the way that somebody is saved is to die? That is. That's the only answer. The only way to be justified before God, the only way to have eternal life is to die. He says a Christian has died. He has died with Christ. That is, united to Jesus Christ in his death. United to him as our representative. United to him spiritually, representatively. The theologian John Murray said that union with Christ, the doctrine of our union with Christ, is, quote, the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. And to that I say a hearty amen. What does it mean when Paul says that in Christ I died to the law through the law? Because isn't that what he's saying? Take a look at it again. Through the law, I died to the law in Jesus Christ. What in the world does he mean? Well, just think about the law for a minute and what the law says. Because whatever's happening here, it, it happens through the law. The law says in Deuteronomy 27.26, and Paul's going to quote this, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Cursed. You're cursed by God if you don't confirm the law by obedience. And the law also says in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, that A person cursed by God is hanged on a tree. Both of these Paul quotes later on in Galatians. Friends, here's what he's getting at. In Christ's crucifixion on the tree, on the cross, when Christ died on that cross, sin's curse, the law's curse, was carried out. Not only on Jesus Christ, not only did he suffer the curse of breaking covenant with God, but he suffered that curse on our behalf, on behalf of all of those who are united to him in union, in a faith union with him. 
And if the law's penalty, follow this now, if the law's penalty, death, if that is exhausted, if all the penalty that the law can bring upon you is exhausted, I mean, you can only die once, right? <laughs> That's the ultimate punishment of the law. If, 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 the, if the law's penalty is exhausted, then the law holds no more threat for us who are united to Jesus Christ in his death. The law has no more claim over us. The law has no more jurisdiction over dead people. The ultimate punishment has been paid. We're outside of the jurisdiction of the law. Now, Paul says we have died to the law and all of the law's penalty upon lawbreakers. This is his reason why um, he's saying that the, the arguments of the false teachers are, are invalid. And not only have we died with Christ, but he says also that we what? We live with him. We're alive with him. Notice the text. He says, we died, I died to the law so that I might live to God. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Friends, here's the truth. If we are in Christ, we have been raised to new life. Christ is living out his life in us and through us. And what kind of life does Jesus Christ live? A life of obedience to God. A life of righteousness. If I am alive in Christ, now I'm dead to the law, I'm out from under the jurisdiction of the law, the penalty of the law, I'm in Christ and, and, and Christ is in me, I'm alive in Christ, he's living out his life in me, what kind of life is he going to live? He's going to live a life of holiness. He's going to live a life of righteousness. The gospel then doesn't remove the motivations to live obediently to God. It creates obedience to God by virtue of our union with him who is righteous in us. Run, man, run, the law declares. The law demands, but gives him neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids him fly and gives him wings. The gospel is the impetus, it's the, it's the seed of, of new life and obedient life. It brings about obedience in a way that truly honors the Lord Jesus Christ because it is his life being lived out in the Christian. He says, it's no longer I who live. Christ is living in me. He's living through me. Christ gets all of the glory for the way that I am living. A true Christian, friends, um, is a person who has Christ living in him. Sinclair Ferguson said, every benefit you have is either because you are in Christ or because Christ is in you. And Christ in me, working out his life, Paul says, a life of holiness. A true Christian then doesn't does not go on living in sin. A true Christian does obey God's commands but it is Christ in him, working in him by his Spirit. Don't, doesn't experience that, um, that union with Christ perfectly. He doesn't experience that union with Christ 
um, consistently, but he does experience it truly. Let me give you an illustration. All right, it's the passage that we read earlier, Romans chapter 7. Remember the illustration? It was marriage. Marriage is a kind of covenant, right? There's a law of marriage. When you enter into marriage, you are now in the bonds of matrimony. You're under law. You are bound, obligated to that person as long as you both shall live, right? What is the only thing that can break the marriage bond? What is the only thing that can get you out from under the law of marriage? It's death, right? That's what he's getting at. A man is legally bound to his wife as long as they are married, and only death can break it. So our only hope, he argues then, is to die to the law to that impotent husband that was the law, so that we are released from our legal bonds and can be now the bride of Jesus Christ. And as the bride of Christ, there are two wonderful blessings. Number one, we have all that is his credited to us. So when a husband and wife come to the front, so many times in marriage, one part of the wedding ceremony, the, 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 the preacher will look at the, the husband-to-be and the husband will say something like to the wife, with all my worldly goods I thee endow. All that is mine is now yours. All that's yours is mine because we are what? One flesh. When you seek to be justified by faith in Christ alone, you are wed to Christ such that His righteousness is now yours and all of your sin is His and borne by Him. This is the first blessing of this union, this marriage union, this new covenant in Christ Jesus. The second blessing is that it's not just a legal union, It's not just a union on paper that everything belongs together. They actually come together as one flesh and they produce the fruit of that union. And we celebrate and we have a baby shower, right? And in the same way, there is a union of Christ and his people that produces fruit. It produces a true and experiential effect, actual obedience in their lives to the will of God born out by Christ at work in him, the seed of Christ within us coming to fruition, the fruit of the Word, the fruit of the Spirit at work in our actual experience. This is why you don't look at a person who just goes on and on and on in sin, who says with his mouth that he trusts in Christ and pronounce him a Christian. If Christ is in him, that life produces fruit. Paul says, I've died to the law. This is part of the blessing. Law doesn't have any more jurisdiction over me. And on the other hand, I am producing the fruit of obedience from the heart by the transformation of my heart, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the indwelling Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is living out his life in me. So again, the question is, does justification by faith alone condone or promote sin? And the answer is, by no means. Why is that, Paul? Well, he says, rather than, it, it, rather it is going back under the law that actually is what magnifies sin. And also, we're dead to the law. And we have new life in union with Christ. His perfect obedience for us, and His perfect obedience worked out progressively in us, 
And then thirdly, he says that his final answer is in verse 21. You'll see the third four in the middle of that verse. Verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He says, if we could be righteous by our own law-keeping, then Christ's death was all for nothing. And that's true, friend. If you could go get to heaven on your own, if you could get to heaven by being good enough, then Christ's suffering and His death was a waste. And God forbid, there is that is by no means true. But it would be. Because the payment for your, Christ's death was the payment for your sin. And it was the perfect act of obedience on your behalf. And if you didn't need that, if you could be justified by your own works, then all of that was for nothing. Any attempt to justify yourself, to justify your own actions, to justify yourself before God, that you're a pretty good person, is taking the grace of God and the gift of God and casting it to the side. It is making a waste of the incredible cost to God that was the death of His Son. This is not the gospel, Paul says. Now in closing, just look at the personal terms with which he ends this section. Verse 21, verse 20, excuse me. Um, he's moved from, up in verse 16, saying, a person, a person is not justified by works of the law. And saying in universal terms, by the works of the law, no one, no flesh will be justified to coming down to a very personal application when he says that his hope is in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. When John Wesley was coming to faith in Christ, he longed to know this truth for himself. And at the end of reading through um, this exposition of the second chapter of Galatians by Martin Luther, Wesley wrote this, I labored, waited, and prayed to feel who loved me and gave himself for me. I wanted to know, I needed to know that that was true for me. I want to ask you, do you know that that's true for you? That Christ loved you and laid down His life to pay for your sin? You will never know that until you come to the end of yourself. You will never truly know that until you say to God, I have nothing to bring. I have no goodness of my own. Oh God, please save me for Jesus' sake. And then, and only then, can you say, He loved me and gave Himself for me. And when you can truly say that, that's all you ever need to say. Because that is the Gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this precious portion of Your Word. Cause it now to find good soil 
Lord, create the goodness in the heart to hear and receive this word. Pray it in Christ Jesus' name.